0: Our text this morning is Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. We read, On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Have you ever felt like God isn't really paying attention to what you need? Does He not see the sickness? Does He not see my dying child? Does He not see the pain of our broken family? Does He not see the wars on the earth? Does He not see the children dying from hunger? Does He not see our needs? Does your heart sound like David's in Psalm 13 when he writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever felt that way? Is that how you feel right now? Do you not see what I need, God? Lord, do you not see what I need? Do you not see what we're going through? My friends, our text today demonstrates something very clear. He absolutely knows. He absolutely knows. He knows the thoughts of every heart. He knows the details of every situation. And He knows the weight Of every need. Far better than you ever will. And this story before us. Shows us something very important. Jesus in infinite love. And mercy. Prioritizes. And provides. For our needs. Based. Upon their eternal weight. Not our immediate wants. Jesus prioritizes and provides for needs based upon eternal weight, not immediate wants. And that's hard to come to the conclusion sometimes. When the reality is this, is that the Lord knows what you need better than you do. And that's hard to say to someone suffering, I know. The Lord knows what you need more than you do. And He prioritizes and provides for that in a way we never can. Not only does He provide the needs themselves, but He also provides the very instruments of mercy which bring them to pass. The entire chapter of Luke chapter 5 is all about the fact that Jesus sees what we need better than we do and provides for us better than we can. He removes our uncleanness like the leper. He forgives our sins like the paralytic. And as we will see next week, He establishes fellowship with us forever just like He does Levi the tax collector. He knows what we need more than we do. And He prioritizes and provides for them perfectly. Yet the question that this text will place upon every heart today is in the economy of Christ's perfect provision will we stand by as spectators or participate as servants? Will we look on as cynics because of the way he chooses to act? Or because of who He chooses to act upon? Or will we glorify Him as celebrants because of His infinite power and grace which provides beyond anything we ever could have imagined? The main point of today's message is very simple and straightforward. Jesus as the divine Son of Man has complete authority and power to forgive sins and transform any life that is carried to Him in faith. That's where we're going, and I hope you'll see that clearly from the text this morning. The first thing that we see from our text this morning is we see this growing crowd of unique spectators. See this in verse 17. On one of those days, as He was teaching, that's Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there Who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him, that's Christ, with him to heal. So, obviously, word has gone out about this Nazarene who's doing incredible things. So much so that word has made its way to Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, all of these. Prime religious leaders begin to come and say, we we need to see what this is all about. We can't have this happening under our nose and not know what the big deal is. Now these Pharisees, there were really four major camps within Judaism, right? There are Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, right? These are the four major groups. The Pharisees are those Who main goal is to keep Israel faithful to Torah? They must stay in line with the Mosaic law. They must stay faithful. For if we are not faithful to Mosaic law and to the writings of the prophets, Messiah will not come. He will not come if we are not doing all of these things to perfection. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were just, they were kind of the religious aristocrats. They were the ones who kept the temple and worked in the temple, but thought very little of the law, did not believe in supernatural realities, did not believe in angels or even sin, they did not believe in the concept of a resurrection. Um, so they were the kind of a very liberal sect, who would say, in our text. The zealots are just like, we're going to make Messiah come with war. We're going to throw out Rome ourselves, and then the Essenes were kind of like the monks. Like, they were the John the Baptist in a way. They would go out to the wilderness, study the Scriptures, and merely wait in their kind of ascetic practices, their monk's lifestyles, till the Messiah comes to bring redemption. Many of the Dead Sea Scrolls were kept within the Essene. Community there in the wilderness. But these are the Pharisees, we are told. These, these faithful, we've got to keep Israel right along with the law. They've got to stay faithful to Torah or Messiah won't come. And then this other group that we, we are referred to as the teachers of the law. Now, most of the teachers of the law were a part of the Pharisees. But the teachers of the law, their job was to help develop teachings, the Mishnah, from the Torah that could apply to contemporary life. So these men, like Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, would come and students would come and sit at their feet and they would interpret the law or give understanding to the law or the writings so that people could understand how that applied to their life. These were the adjudicators of the law and oftentimes came out of the Pharisees themselves. And so these men are hearing of everything going on with this Jesus of Nazareth, and they are thinking, we need to know who this man is and what he's teaching. We are hearing things that are concerning. We have reports from Nazareth declaring that he has brought the jubilee year of the Lord. Well, only Messiah can do that. So we must come and hear. We hear of him healing, and so we must come and see what this is all about. My friends, they did not come to believe in Jesus. They weren't there because they thought, wow, this is really cool. No, they came. They had been dispatched as inquisitors. These were heresy hunters. We are coming to sit and spectate to see if this indeed is of God or if it is not. If this man indeed claims to be Messiah, if he indeed claims to be the one who will bring the redemption of Israel, for if he does, then we have a reason to bring charge against him. They are not coming here as genuine individuals who long to know about Jesus. My word, Nicodemus would go by the very uh, provision of uh, the provision of night so that his fellow. Teachers of the law would not see that he would go to this Jesus and actually inquire to see if this was true. These men are here not to believe. They are there to spectate. They sit waiting and watching just for the moment that he says something that they don't like. To catch him in a bind. To do something that they can go to Torah and say this isn't how Moses said They are not there to grow. They are not there to be convicted. They are not there to be discipled, to hear the power of this young rabbi. They are there merely to spectate and to be ready at the drop of a a false word or a a strange event to declare it as wicked. Skeptical and faithless, these men sat there. Luke is including this for a very important purpose. This event is also found in Mark chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 9. But Luke makes it very clear that it's the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that are making up the abundance of this crowd because he's wanting to paint a contrast between spectators versus servants. We're going to see a group of servants in a moment. But now these men, these faithful under-shepherds of Israel, these spiritual leaders, they sit there. They sit there waiting. But such wickedness and spiritual blindness and wicked skepticism has marked Israel from its history. The false prophets of Israel during the Old Covenant were the same that any time a true prophet of God rose up, these false prophets would sit around them waiting to accuse them that they might kill them. We see this best with Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 18. Then they said, come, let us make plots against Jeremiah. For the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us strike him with the tongue and let us not pay attention to any of his words. That's the heart of spectating there. Let's not pay attention to any of his words. Let's just find a reason to strike him down. Jeremiah 20, verse 10. This is Jeremiah now praying to the Lord. For I hear many whispering. Terror is on every side. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him this has been the heart of Israel. Of these wicked religious leaders of Israel always looking for someone to destroy. Anytime a true word or a true movement of God would raise up, they would seek to kill it. Because when it's a movement of God, He gets the glory. Men don't. We want to seek to kill anything where He takes the glory from us. Or He doesn't do it our way. Or fit our model. It's outside of our framework. Therefore, it must be wrong. And we will kill it. We don't even want to hear the words. These men are there to sit by Jesus' teaching. Not under it. They sit by teaching. Not under it. And there's a huge difference. There are many people who have come to church this morning. Across the world who are there to sit by teaching not under it who are sitting and waiting for their pastor not to sound like given ex-favorite celebrity pastor and when he does i'm going to close my ears and harden my heart when he doesn't sound as eloquent as he ought to i'm going to say maybe he's not the one that i need to be listening to when he doesn't champion the cause of my little echo chamber i don't want to hear him anymore You're sitting by teaching, not under it. Not realizing the Lord has set apart faithful elders for the purpose of declaring to you, thus says the Lord. And you are to sit under it and to act in obedience where the Word of the Lord goes. The authority is not here. The authority is here. And will you sit under it or will you sit by it? Because there are many who sit by it and wonder why my life has never changed. It's because you've gone church shopping rather than disciple making. There is a temper of mind which is as sharp as as the eyes of a lynx when it comes to looking for faults. And blind as a bat to evidences of real divine power in the gospel. It can see a fault from a mile away, but when God is doing amazing things, it must turn His eyes. It can't see it. The nose of a spectator which is quick to smell stench but can't smell fragrance no matter how close it gets. My friends, such a spiritual inquisitors, the race of such individuals has not gone extinct. Churches are full of such spectators longing for messages that ooh and ah in its presentation but despise those that would convict of sin or demand a change in action or see God work in a way or Christ work in a way that breaks the mold of what they're used to. Yet in the midst of their spectating, notice, Jesus' power is unbelievable. It says that He was healing. While they're sitting there, Jesus is doing incredible healings and they're just watching Just sitting there. How in the world could these leaders not completely surrender to Jesus with all that they saw and heard? That's a real question that you've got to wrestle with. And if you haven't, you haven't thought too much about this. How in the world could all those who saw Jesus say and do what he did, not just completely surrender their lives? Perhaps it was the strangeness of it all. Remember, for 400 years, it's been silent. God hasn't been acting, and so we've just been going to the temple, we've been doing our rituals. They were people of ritual, it's the ritual that matters. As long as our ritual's in place, as long as there's no disorder in the ritual, as long as people are, are following it to a T, then God's there. But the moment that goes outside of that and it becomes strange, it just can't be God. It can't be God. It can't be real. This isn't how God has worked in my life. Therefore, it can't be true in others. Their awe of Christ's power was crucified in their heart by what they believed to be discernment. My friends, there is a place for real biblical discernment. But then there is just often false and wicked scrutiny that are not the same. Biblical discernment is where I sit over my own heart in judgment of does it align with Scripture. It does not sit in the courtrooms of looking out at everyone else and say, you know, I don't think they do it like me. The Lord has assigned that kind of discernment, that kind of looking for and examining false teachers to the leaders of the church. But when it comes to faithful biblical discernment, it is one which sits over my own heart and hears teaching and says, is this true in accordance with the Word and will I allow it into my heart? That's biblical discernment. But this is just scrutiny. Beware the day when your scrutiny produces more doubt than it does delight in what Christ is doing in the life of others. The day that my heart spends more time in doubt than delight in what Jesus is doing, God help me. God help me. Or maybe it was the fact that they had been burnt by so many false messiahs before. This will do that. There was plenty of false messiahs in those 400 years. Bar Kokhba and so many others. These false messiahs who raised up to to try to lead Israel in revolution and ended up just getting crushed. And so, when you've been burnt a lot by people, there's an intrinsic response, which is, I have to keep you at an arm's distance. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was just fear. It was fear because I've been burnt by men. Therefore, I can't even give my heart over to the reality that this might be true. My friends, don't let the majesty and mystery of what Christ is doing or the fact that men have been shown to fail you in your past keep you from surrendering to him in the present. Men will fail you. Pastors will fail you. Spiritual leaders will fail you. But your salvation isn't based upon men and their failures. It's based upon Christ and His perfections. I'm not asking you to believe in me. I'm calling you to believe on Christ. That's the basis of our faith. So don't let the failures of men blind you from the awe and majesty of Christ. Here, these religious leaders crowded a room to contemn Jesus while He's healing the sick. But you know what these true under-shepherds should have been doing? They shouldn't have been sitting there. They should have been going and getting every hurt person, every sick person, every sinner and saying, here's the Messiah. That's what these men should have been doing. It was their job to go and carry people to Christ. Instead, they're sitting there. They're sitting there actually blocking the path of faith. God help us from becoming a religious crowd that blocks those who desperately need Jesus from getting there. But this was not true for everyone. For secondly, we see an incredible display of faith. We see this in verse 18 and 19. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. You can imagine that at this point, as much as these Pharisees and, and religious leaders have heard about this, you can be assured that every sick person, every lame person, every blind person throughout Judea has heard there's someone who can help There is someone, and I don't know how, but the moment he touches someone or merely speaks it, they're healed. You can imagine the burning desire that developed in that paralyzed man. Because here's the fact, he can't get to Jesus. There's nothing he can't do. He can't crawl. He can't roll. He can't do anything to get to Christ on his own. He's left there dead on a mat with no hope but a burning heart to know Christ. Praise God for faithful friends. Perhaps this man was just crying out, Will someone please carry me to Christ? Will someone please carry me to this Jesus? Or perhaps these were just men who knew him, who loved him, and heard about it themselves. And we know from Mark's account, and we get these little details because Mark's getting this from Peter, but there were four men, and likely these four men were there to keep, carry each corner of the bed. And they, they get up and they grab this man and they carry him on his bed right to where Jesus is teaching. And when they get there, they can't even get to Jesus. Because there's all these religious skeptics and spectators who are crowding the room. They're blocking the door to Christ. They're looking at the men who should have been the ones doing the carrying. But they're just sitting there while a dying world is outside the room. These men see that the way is blocked. And so they decide to make a way. They look up and they go up to the roof. Now, most Palestinian homes at this time, there are two stories, right? One, which is kind of the the area of living where the kitchen was, an area of fellowship. And the second story was just the open roof. And the open roof was often the place where they would sleep or even take baths. We know the story of Bathsheba there. um, Not always the best place. But it's where they would often sleep just to escape the heat of the day. And so they would sleep on the roofs. It was also a place of fellowship or a place of bathing or things like that. And so they go up to the roof. And now this roof would have been supported by beams and it would have then had on top of those beams palm branches and thorns woven together and then clay, a few inches, probably five to six inches of clay, stacked up on there and hardened so that individuals could safely walk on this. So this isn't just them pulling a couple of palm branches away. They get to the roof and and Luke uses the word tiles here, but that word tiles is just the same Greek word as clay. They start literally scratching and ripping clay out, digging through thorns, pulling out palm branches to make hole in roof big enough to drop this man through on ropes and and lower him down before Christ. Talk about the effort. Talk about intensity of I must get him to Christ. My friends, throughout this whole event, we see the essence of true faith on display. The paralytic demonstrates that true faith is marked by an immense desire to, to get to Christ even when I know I can't get there myself. That's the reality of the burning of the effectual the, the calling of the Holy Spirit upon the heart is that immediate moment where for the first time ever you saw I've got to get to Jesus. Well, I don't know how to. I There's nothing in me that can get to Him. But i got to. I've got to. And so the Holy Spirit comes in carries us, carries us to Christ. But this is an immense desire. This man knew, I've got to get to Christ. Whether he was calling out and crying, will someone please carry me to Him? Or whether it was just a begging question to say, friends, will you please take me? but I must go to Christ. There is never a time where he's like, you know, just put me down. I'm sorry that I'm a burden to you. Your thoughts of being a burden are immediately alleviated when you know I've got to get to Christ. I'm sorry if you've got to get me there, but I've got to go. I've got to get to Christ. Desire, my friends, is fueled by Desperation. And until you know you got no hope apart from him, you'll never have the desire you need for Jesus. You'll never know the immense desperation of woe unto me. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips. Depart from me. I have nothing to give you, but I need you. That same desire that Peter would say after the crowds abandoned Jesus, the Lord looks at Peter. and He says, are you going to go also? And Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Desperation fuels desire. When you know your desperate need for Christ, you will be to have the same desire that this man knew. He has been paralyzed probably since birth. Where else can I go? If there's an inkling, he can help me. Where else will I turn? These four men also demonstrate true Faith. Because they show us that true faith moves. There's nothing idle about true faith. It's the reason why James said, I'll show you my faith by my works. These men are the essence of what James meant by that. I'll show you my faith by my works. True faith moves. It loves. It acts. It goes. It pursues. It doesn't sit. Since sit. It moves in passion towards Christ and love towards others. My friends, their hearts yearned to see this man healed. They demonstrated that true faith is selfless and sacrificial. Whether it was the physical cost of the roof they just ripped apart and now they've got to figure out how to fix and repair. Whether it was just the sheer weight of having to carry this man. Whether it was the embarrassment that they would face for doing what they just did. Are these the religious leaders? They're going to look at us and say, how shameful. But my friend, true faith is unashamed. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation. You can imagine the Pharisees scoffing as they watch the roof get clawed away. And this man lowering, going, This is the craziness we've been hearing about. This is the kind of destruction this man brings. As a paralyzed man would be brought down to be healed, which they've been watching happening over and over again, you can imagine their hearts scoffing. This is crazy. This is confusion. This is disorderly. What's happening here? These men de- demonstrated that true faith is not ashamed, but it's persistent. Nothing would get in their way in their journey to Christ. No obstacle would stop them. They would not. This roof was, just, was nothing for them. We'll get through it. I don't know how or how long it takes. We will find a way to get to Christ. That's what faith says. Faith says no matter what obstacles are before you today. It's a heart that beats that says, I'm getting to Christ. It's a heart that says with Jacob, I will not let go until you bless me. Faith is persistent. Faith does not give up to the, the first sign of op- Opposition. This is where spiritual discipline is absolutely key. We must allow no difficulties to check us. No obstacle to keep us back from anything which is for our spiritual good. Specifically, we must bear in mind the matter that we need to be in our Bible every day. What's keeping you from the word? Tear through it. What's keeping you from sharing the gospel? It's time to find another way. Get over the ladder and do it. What's keeping you from that private prayer time? It's got to go. You've got to be disciplined because discipline is what promotes persistence. Motivation will only carry you so far. Discipline is greater than motivation. Because motivation won't be there tomorrow, but discipline can be. On all these points, we must be aware of laziness and an excuse making spirit, a spirit of apathy that always finds a reason while we're not doing something, while we're not pursuing this person, while we're not sharing the gospel, while we're not in the word more, while we're not in prayer more, while we're not serving our church more. There will always be an excuse. And the enemy's is a, a king at whispering them to you. So stop stealing his lines and look to these men. If we cannot find means of keeping up our habits in one way, we must find another. If the door is shut, we must find another another inch away. But we must settle our minds. We will get to Christ no matter what. That is the heart of the perseverance of the saints. It is a heart that has been created in you that says, I will get to Christ. No matter what, no matter what. Last men, lastly, these men display that true faith knows there's nothing that Jesus can't do. You don't go through this effort if you think that male well, maybe he can do it. They know he can do it. They know he can fix him. They know he can heal him. They know he can. And when you know his power and his authority. There's nothing or no one you won't carry to him in faith. There's nothing or no one you won't carry him into faith when you know there's nothing he can't do. Does such faith mark us? Does such desire, love, selflessness, persistence, and certainty mark our faith? Does our faith move us? Are you moved by what you know of Christ? Are you driven to action? Are you just okay with sitting by here? Are you okay with coming here like a weekly IV to just get filled up with enough experience to make you feel better about yourself till Saturday? Are you moved to action? You've been given the ministry of reconciliation. The working for the ministry. You've been equipped for that, saints. Now go do it. Are you not moved by your faith? If you're not... You're a spectator, not a servant. This brother now lies before Christ and all eyes are watching. What will he do? How will this happen? And we see a shocking declaration of sins forgiven. Verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Man, your sins are forgiven you. This would have stunned everyone there for a couple of reasons. Right? Jesus has been healing people left and right. Like He's been physically healing diseases and blindness and lameness. And here is this paralyzed man who who, through immense effort by these brothers have brought Him to Him paralyzed and it's obvious why he's there he clearly wants to walk and yet in the midst of this Jesus does not say rise and walk he says man your sins are forgiven as I was reflecting on this text this week I, my heart began to go a couple of places did the man's eyes fill with tears of joy? Or did his heart possibly sink with disappointment? Wait, what? My sins are forgiven. But what about me walking? Don't you know what I need? Don't you know what I need most from you, Jesus? Jesus. you see the cancer? Don't you see the paralysis? Don't you see the sickness? Don't you know what we need? If not, you're not a very good Savior. You're not a very good Lord. I thought, if this is all Jesus said to that man that day, would they have glorified Him still? Or would they have walked away Disappointed? That even though this man is now right with God, he's still flat on a mat. Did the sweaty and exhausted friends look at each other with confusion? Clay staining their face. Scratches on their arms from digging through a roof. Arms fatigued from carrying a man who knows how long. Did they look at each other with frustration? Frustration? what this is what we brought him for all this for just a statement so often we want jesus to change our life without dealing with our sin and my friends i want you to know that's not possible he can't fix your life until he forgives your sin So often we want plastic surgery but not a heart transplant. And Christ is no cosmetic surgeon. He's a soul surgeon who transplants and takes all of the wicked and brings in exactly what we need. You see, what they failed to understand is that Jesus had just met this man's greatest need of all. This man's greatest need was not whether or not he could stand on earth, but whether or not he could stand before God. Could he stand before God as righteous as opposed to standing on earth upright? Jesus met His greatest need because of His amazing faith. Your sins are forgiven you. The greatest reward for faith, my friends, is not physical healing. It is the forgiveness of sins which brings peace with God. This man received the greatest reward anyone can. Forgiveness of sin. Justification by faith. Paul speaks of it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we've been justified, that's made right by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Do you see that? He's obtained access to God. In other words, men, you just ripped a hole through this roof and I just ripped a hole into heaven so that He can get there because His sins are forgiven. His sins are forgiven. You brought him to me. I just carried him to God. His sins are forgiven. His greatest need was met. This man was brought to be healed, but the healing was far greater than anyone could have ever imagined. My friends, Jesus is changing the dynamic that they're expecting. He is no mere faith healer, no mere physician of physical remedies and problems. His power extends deeply into the spiritual realm, far beyond the removal of evil spirits, but even now of personal sin. Only a power which can deal with our sense of sin and soothe that into a blessed assurance of pardon is strong enough to actually grapple with the other aspects of our misery. My friends, if Jesus came and brought world peace, if He came and eradicated poverty and brought the cure for cancer, if He came and wiped away all evil, well, let me make it clear. If He came and wiped away all evil, there would be no one here today. But let's be clear. The Lord had already started over once. And how does the very next scene we get after Him flooding the earth what happens a drunken father shamed by a rebellious son and guess what if he would have came and brought cancer we would have found another way to pollute men if he would have came and brought poverty we would have ended poverty we would have found another way to enslave our fellow brothers if he doesn't deal with sin none of the other misery can he touch he came To address the greatest need. Because only when our sins are are, are covered and forgiven and our hearts change, then can we actually be put to work at eradicating the other things. There's a reason why we have the world of medicine that we do. There's a reason why slavery was abolished. It's called Christianity. And anyone who doesn't want to believe that doesn't know history. There's a reason why the Western world is where we are on the basis of rights and civilization. And it's not because of Plato, it's because of Christ. And we seek to build a tower and remove the foundation and wonder why everything's collapsing around us. The world will change, but only when sins are forgiven, when sins are removed. And that's what he came to do, first and foremost. It would be useless to give a man dying of cancer medicine for acne. But that's what we want. We want to trim away every symptom, but never address the root. Prune away every piece of bad fruit and get angry at God over it when the root of the problem is in us. That's what he came to save. That's what he came to remove. So that everything else might be added unto you. What would have been Christ, what, 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 what what would what the world have been if Christ merely come to treat the symptoms of sin but not destroy the root of it? It would have been a continual path to hell, my friends. If he would have just said, "Rise up and walk," great. Now he can walk for the next forty years right to hell. I don't want any healing that's going to end up with me dying away from God. I'd rather walk. I'd rather live my life on a mat looking up at the one that I'll spend eternity with walking forever in glory. Jesus not only meant what He said, but He makes the statement in such a way that will now ensure there's no going back. He knows what these inquisitors have come for. And He's given them exactly what they want. We see a serious challenge to Jesus' identity Verse 21 to 23, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, "Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, "Why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say, "Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, "Rise and walk." These men's heart burnt with anger. How could he say that? Of all the things, forgive sins, Only God can forgive sins. Now, hear me. Theologically, they are absolutely right. Hear me. Their theology is spot on at this point. Only God can forgive sins. And so, if Jesus, well, I'll let you put your mind there for a second. Let you put some d- d- deduction here. So, if Jesus is saying this and he's not God, they're right. He is a blasphemer. Anyone, anyone who would wish to tell you Jesus never claimed to be God hasn't read into uh, the first quarter of the Gospel according to Luke. There's a reason they wanted to kill Him. And notice, it had nothing to do when He was a good teacher. It had nothing to do when He was a good healer. But the moment He sought to touch sins, they sought to kill Him. And there's a whole lot of people like that today. I'll take Jesus the great teacher. I'll take Jesus the faith healer. But you keep away a new concept of Jesus the only Savior. But you can't have the other without this. Only God can forgive sins. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. The Lord declares, I... I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. They are right. Only God can forgive sins. Their theology is spot on. But here's a warning to us this morning because it shows us that you can have all the right theology and no relationship to Jesus. You can have all the right theology and miss him when he's right before your eyes. I'm not undermining bad theology. You need good theology. But if it doesn't flow out of an intimate knowledge of Jesus and my life and my relationship with him first, it is all vain. And it will do nothing more but puff you up to bring about a terrible fall in the end. These men were right in their hearts, but Jesus sees their heart. Notice, they don't say this stuff. Jesus perceived their thoughts. Okay, this is already telling us something else about Jesus. So not only is he forgiven sins, but he's literally seeing into people's hearts and what's happening there. So in other words, it didn't matter that they were there, it was mattered what they thought. You could be here, but what are you thinking? Because Christ sees it. You can confuse me and everyone else here in the morning by raising your hand, singing the song, and smiling at me at the end and saying, "Great, great message, Pastor. Wonderful, thank you. What does Christ see right now? Where does He see your heart being carried right now? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom they must give account. Jesus puts their hearts before their eyes. You want something to spectate? How about your own heart? And I love what He says here. Which is easier? Now, this seems like a simple question. Well, of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's there's nothing that they can actually say. Well, did that really happen or not at this moment or rise and walk? But here's the truth of it. It's not about a like Jesus is not playing semantics with them here. He's making a really clear, a, a very astute point, which is easier to say someone's sins are forgiven or to make a paralyzed man rise and walk? And the answer is both are impossible except for God. He's setting the stage. But here's one thing that I want to focus on real quick. The question is not ultimately which is easier. The question should be, which was costlier? It didn't cost Jesus anything to heal people. He healed all the day long. Take away, give people eyesight, let them hear, let them speak, let them see, let them walk, let them leap, let them run. And it didn't cost him anything. But forgiving sins cost him everything. Because in order for him to forgive sins, he would have to die. And not just die, he would have to bear the wrath of God in that sinner's place. So don't look to which is easier. Ask the question, what was costlier? And that's what Christ came to do. Christ did not come to do what was easier. He came to do what was costlier. They were both impossible for men. And this very event of this man being carried to him would set the ball rolling for what would ultimately lead to this forgiveness actually happening, which is Jesus being carried on the cross. But he would show in this final point that he was neither blasphemous or offering merely empty words. We see a miraculous demonstration of Jesus' authority. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, this Son of Man language. So often when people say, well, that's Jesus referring to His humanity. No, that's not at all what it's about. Right. The son of man is a statement which was which was given to the Messiah in order to denote the Messiah's divine origin and divine identity. We see this in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so what Jesus is doing here is just adding more fuel to the fire. Not only do I have the authority to forgive sins, I am the Son of Man. I am the one who has come from God. And notice it says he comes from the clouds. Only God comes from the clouds in in Hebraic scripture. I am the one who is eternally generated from the Father, the Ancient of Days. I am as I am. I am the eternal Son of God. And I am the one who is going to establish a kingdom which includes a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It will destroy all the other kingdoms of the world. And all of mankind will be held accountable to me. Jesus is saying, I'll be the judge. And to validate this paralytic's forgiveness, he now declares his healing. In other words, if he walks, then he's not only forgiven, but then this Jesus is no mere teacher. He's no mere healer, no mere rabbi, no mere prophet. If this man walks now, he's God in the flesh. And oh, my friends, did he walk? He walked. God is not going to allow a blasphemer to let a man now walk for everyone to see and so that he gets the glory. It's just like the resurrection. If he really didn't die for sins and those sins weren't perfectly met at Calvary, then he doesn't come out of that grave. But he does. God vindicates the authority and power of his son, and the man walks. Three commands, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And the paralytic faithfully does all three. I love this picture. Because the paralytic walks away carrying the bed that once carried him. He carries the bed that once carried him. A life completely transformed, forgiven, and healed all because he had been carried To Jesus. My friends, that is true for everyone who is brought to Christ. Sins forgiven and souls forever healed. There is no life that He touches that isn't changed immediately. And my friends, I want you to know this today. Please hear me today. As someone who, in the last 48 hours, lost my grandmother to a battle of cancer. But is absolutely rejoicing today because I know where she is. Jesus will physically heal every person that is in him in faith, either now or in eternity. And right now, my grandmother knows no cancer. You will. Be healed. But your greater need is not the physical healing. It's eternal salvation. And He gives that immediately when you receive Him in saving faith. Every step of this man's life declared God's glory. What about yours? I want to close with these final takeaways. And this beautiful story of of salvation and healing. Five things. First, be servants, not spectators. Faith moves, it moves you. Don't don't come here and just say, All right, well, well, what did I get from today's service? Ask, what will you do in light of it? What will you be in light of everything Christ has done for you? Who is it that you will go after? How will you pursue Him more intensely, more, more in a way that is just unstoppable, that nothing will get in your way, that you'll be unwavering in going after and pursuing Christ, not only individually, but in carrying others to Him as well? Amen. Be servants, not spectators. Ask, Lord, what, how can you use me? Where can I serve you? How can I serve your people? Who can I carry? I don't have much, Lord, but whatever I have, use it for your kingdom. Use it for your glory. Be servants, not spectators. Faith moves. Secondly, who you surround yourself with matters. Do you got friends keeping you from Christ or carrying you to him? Because if they're doing the former, you don't need them. I don't need someone who sees my immense yearning for more of Jesus to say, sorry, I'll leave you there. I need brothers to carry me. And I need to carry them. Who you surround yourself with matters. Do not be unequally yoked in your intimate relationships with a spouse, with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and especially with your other friends. Don't be unequally yoked. I'm not saying don't have a heart for the world. I'm not saying don't go after them. But I'm saying who you, let at, who you let at the table of your life matters. Are they carrying you to Christ? Or are they keeping you from Him? Who you surround yourself with matters. Thirdly, Jesus is either a blasphemer or a God. That's it. There's no in-between. You don't get good moral teachers. You don't get awesome ancient Eastern, middle, Middle Eastern, you know, healer. You don't get maybe kind of a Buddha guy. You don't get any of that. And he's definitely not a lunatic, so he's either a liar or a lord. I don't I won't allow the lunatic to come in there. He he does too much that that removes any concept of someone who doesn't is not in their right state of mind. He's either a liar or a lord. And everything about his life attests he is God in the flesh. You don't get an in-between. You don't get a, a, a fence to sit on here. He's either a blasphemer God. And everything says he's God. It screams it from the pages of Scripture. So repent and believe that you serve God. God when you look to Christ. For forgiven sins is our greatest need. And that's your greatest need this morning. When you walk out of here, no matter what else you face today. The, the question that you mostly need to ask is, are my sins forgiven? Am I right before a holy God? If not, then hear me. Bring your heart fully to Christ in faith. And hear His words. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven you. Carry your heart to Christ And hear your greatest need be met by His powerful words. And everything else will be added unto you in His time and in His will. And it will be perfect in the way that He meets those needs elsewhere. And He will meet needs in ways you never even thought possible. I promise you. But the greatest need is salvation. And He meets that right now wherever you are if you believe in Him. And lastly, true forgiveness always leads to life transformation. If you have encountered the living Christ, if He has touched your heart, I promise you, your life won't stay the same. You're going to be different. You can't tell me that you have, you have had a head-on collision with the Lord of glory and your life looks the same. If my car gets blindsided by a semi, I promise you it won't look the way it did coming out of the lot. And yet, we think we can get just crushed by the Lord of glory and everything just looks the same. No way. When you come to Him, everything changes. He will transform your life in ways unimaginable. Only for the good, only for His glory. And He will make you instruments of mercy to go carry others also. So the closing question for us all today is this. Who will you go carry to Jesus? Who will you go carry to Jesus? Who will you share the Gospel with? Who will you love towards Christ this week? He has made us His instruments of mercy. And the reality is, brothers and sisters, it's a lost world out there. They're spiritually paralyzed. They can't go anywhere. That's why we've got to go to them. We've got to go with the Gospels. How blessed are the feet of those who bring good news. We've got to go because they can't get here. They're spiritually dead. They're unable to move. We've got to go to them and bring them the truth and carry them to Christ. We must point their eyes towards the son of man, prod their hearts with the truth of salvation, and then step by step through discipleship, carry them closer to him by the power of the spirit, overcoming whatever obstacles are put in our way. Don't be so quick to let people down. Just when they push back, persevere in faith, you'll be amazed at what the outcome will be. Lord, lead us in your love to those around us. And my friends, maybe you say, my, my child is cut off from me. My, my friend doesn't even want to speak to me anymore about Jesus. My, my family member, if I even start talking about the Bible, they just cut me off. They don't want to speak. I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, then hear me today. There's one thing you can always do, and that's pray the roof off for them. Pray the roof off for them and carry them to Christ on your knees so that the ropes of faith may bind their paralyzed soul and place them right before the Son of Man, where they can receive forgiveness and healing and be transformed forever. My friends, Jesus has all authority on heaven and earth. There is no sin he can't forgive, no need he can't meet, no healing he can't bring. So let's grab the ropes, church. This is a world that needs to be carried to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus. Lord, help us when we are struggling with the thought of You not seeing or You not being mindful of what we need. Let us be reminded that You've already provided the greatest need of all. And that You know exactly what Your children need. You are a good Father. And Lord, You meet those needs in a way that bring You glory. That work for our good. There isn't anything that You do that is meaningless or purposeless. Let us trust You in that, Lord. Lord, You are the divine Son of Man. You are the one who has established a kingdom on earth that will never be shaken, that will dwell forever upon You, our cornerstone Christ. Lord, You will be the judge of all mankind. But You offer forgiveness. Uh, That all that would come to You in faith, immense faith, Surrendering all, saying you are our only hope. We are desperate for you. That you give them forgiveness. And that you bring their souls healing. And even lives healing. Lord, we thank you for knowing what we need. And we thank you for giving us what we need in Jesus. And I pray today, God, that every heart will have been carried to you. That every heart will leave here transformed and on fire for you. That they will leave this place in awe of your majesty. And that every step they take would be one for your glory. Lord, let there not be a single soul here today that doesn't leave here knowing with absolute certainty, I am forgiven. God, make us servants, not spectators. Let us live for You. Build our life upon Your love to pursue Christ with unshakable discipline and to pursue others with immense love. Lord, we thank You for Jesus. Jesus, we thank You for healing us. Spirit, we thank You for carrying us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.